Good morning, and welcome to episode 419 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, we're not, well, I'm not the uh, first one to complain about this, but um, I, I just, I don't think there's a, uh, a, a worse thing that Bud Selig has ever done as commissioner uh, than having no day games in the second game of the season. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a little strange. I looked at the schedule last night and was hoping to see one, but didn't. Yeah, I think they, this happened, I think, last year or maybe the year before, too. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, I presumably, um, you know, baseball gets higher ratings at night. And so, you know, probably they have financial incentives to have lots of night games, but I'm at a point in my life where I don't actually get to watch any baseball at night because I have family and children and work to do. And yeah. during the day I can blow all that off. And it's like, <laughs> why doesn't Bud Selig think about those, those of us who are baseball writers? <laughs> yes. For a living? We should be his first priority. Really? There's dozens of us. <laughs> We're all on Twitter. Uh, anyway. Tweet stuff all the time. Yeah. No, I mean, even before I wrote about baseball, the, I, I was much more likely to watch a game or, or at least follow a game during the day than at night because I was a terrible employee. And uh, the, that's what America is, terrible employees. So, I, Well, yeah, I used to feel exactly the opposite way because I was in school or, uh, or I had a job that I, you know, didn't didn't control the hours and like if it was sort of I don't know if that was pre MLB TV or when MLB TV wasn't so great or or I was actually busy sometimes and I used to think I can't watch any of these games during the day I don't want games during the day um now I guess I have changed my tune so they should set the schedule based on when I am free but you only need, like I like I said yesterday, you, you really only need one game to make me happy. I don't need 15 day games. Just one, I think, would 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 get all of us, you know, through the day. Just mm-hmm. one. How many uh, all right. Day games emails. are the Cubs playing these days? I don't know. 35. I don't. Know. I just made up a number. Okay. Made up a number between one and 81. That was my goal with that number. Well, you succeeded. Yeah. Get. I pretty much. I pretty much get there every time. You give me two numbers and ask me to name a number in between. I'll pretty much get it every time. That's what I like about it. It's one of my skills. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Okay. Emails? Call me an email. All right. Um, So if we wanted to, we could pretty much make every email show exclusively Mike Trout questions, it seems like. (laughs) We get so many of them. Um, I don't want to do all Mike Trout questions, but I'll do one. Uh, Kyle from Kalamazoo, Michigan says, if Mike Trout wound up putting up negative one wins above replacement every year for the rest of his career, how long would teams still be giving him a chance to play? Seeing Lincecum struggle and still getting a huge contract makes me wonder that Trout would have 10 years of negative war before teams gave up on him. People like Delman Young still get signed, which made me wonder about this. It does seem like the the one benefit that Linscombe has is that you can be a pitcher and have poor performance but good peripherals, and you can't really do that as a hitter. The closest thing would be to be uh, a poor performance and yet somehow look good to scouts, mm-hmm. um, which I guess was like uh, you know Dayton Moore's uh, original sin with Unieski Betancourt, right? Is mm-hmm. that he, he 
seemed to like his scouts and, and he himself seemed to think he he looked like he should be good, uh, even when it was clear he wasn't. Um, but you can't. It's not like you can hit. Well, I guess you could. I mean, if your Babbitt was really low and you were hitting a lot of line drives, uh, you could you could have good so you know quote unquote peripherals as a hitter. But you know, really, you're basically your numbers are your numbers. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, hitters don't break like pitchers. And I mean, if a pitcher has two bad months, uh, half the league sort of suspicious of him. Uh, whereas a hitter, you just figure he's in a slump. So I don't know. It goes both ways. Um, so minus one war every year. Mm. Uh, Which means man, that he has to be playing a fair amount to get to that point. Unless he's just, well, yeah, you, he'd have to he'd have to play a bit. Um, I should pull up my uh, my recent uni story <laughs> to see if yes. there's anything that informs this. Well, because uh, he, I mean, he had how many? Negative, it was like six. six, yeah, six straight negative war seasons, and we're still <laughs> yeah. playing. With, and, with, was... and yeah, with five of them in full time play, in right. five, other than one year where he only played 57 games, he played at least 134 <laughs> every year. And uh, <laughs> negative 0.2, negative 2, negative 0.9, negative 5, negative 1.1 in 57 games, negative and five? negative 2. Negative point five. Oh, okay. Um, and then negative two. Yeah, and it's not like he was starting out from a Mike Trout level either. Um, hmm. Yeah, I. So I did though. I, the reason I thought it might inform this is because when uh, Drew Stubbs was one of my candidates to be the new uni, uh, I was looking for guys who could do this, who could manage to somehow stay in a lineup for six years despite consistent uh, under replacement performance. And uh, so I went through some candidates, and Stubbs was one that I rejected because, as I wrote, his being right-handed hurts his chances of getting 500 plate appearances more than it might have hurt uni, left-handed platoon mates being easier to find in the outfield than at shortstop. So basically, even if Stubbs were horrible, he probably wouldn't be a full-time player. He would, he would just maybe be a platoon guy who would you know, play 150, you know, get 150 at-bats a year um, and you know, be on the bench. So I don't know if there's, uh, that's actually true. That's a thing I wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while I was writing it, I thought, no evidence for this. <laughs> <laughs> but I powered on. <laughs> um, huh. Okay. So, well, I, maybe it, I mean, I guess it depends a little bit on how he looks while he's putting up negative one war. Is he? Yeah, presumably he's fat, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine. He's either fat or hurt. And right. He's, he's fat. He's hurt. He's had some decline in true talent to the point that you can tell that he's no longer Mike Trout, athletically speaking. Um, I mean, he gets... He'd get three years, right? Oh, goodness gracious. He'd get a lot more than three years. Yeah. I don't know, because... I mean, I think he'd get... You know, he'd keep getting chances indefinitely. People would bring him to camp. He'd... I mean, he'd, he'd always be there. But I don't know that he would get enough playing time to be sub-replacement by a full win for several seasons in a row. I mean, at some point, it becomes clear that he's no longer the same guy. He's not running as fast. He's not swinging as hard. So maybe, you know, you'd bring him into camp and you'd hope that he did something over the winter to get back to being Mike Trout. But I have a hard time imagining a, a manager just sort of penciling him in day after day after day, season after season, 
based on what he did in 2012, 2013. And is Grady Sizemore not the comp here? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about Sizemore. Uh, I mean, Sizemore is kind of the getting a chance guy. Um, right, he had two sub-replacement years and then two years where he was nowhere, just completely not, you know, disappeared. Yeah. So it's been it's been four years since he was replacement level. And, um, you know, I mean, clearly he, he didn't start from Trout's um, from Trout's lofty position, and he had an he had an explanation that would not make you feel optimistic. I mean, mm-hmm. his his problem is identifiable, and it's can, it will always be a problem. It, I mean, it will always at least make people nervous about him. Ricky Weeks is maybe an interesting one too because he's been sub replacement for two years in a row. He's much older. He's you know was never anywhere near the ball player that Trout is, and I mean he's much older. So like he's at an age where you would expect well maybe he will you know maybe he is in his decline years. Um, but it's not like, you know, he had to, I mean, I guess he was under contract, but you don't get the feeling that he's going to be out of the league uh, against his will anytime in the next three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not, no. But wouldn't, I mean, that's because we haven't really, except for, he, he was only briefly, he's like one of those good or hurt guys, right? Except for that one um what did he have like one season where he actually played and was bad yeah he had both were part both of his bad years were part-time they were like 300 plate appearances and 150 plate appearances yeah so it's not like we saw him be bad and healthy for a full season so i don't know i i'd say even if you're mike trout if you are playing full-time and you're sub replacement level i don't think you get more than three seasons to to be a starter and dig yourself out of that hole I uh, I I wish I could think of a good comp off the top of my head. I feel like <laughs> there are I no, mean, there's obviously there's, there are no there's comps no for Mike Trout, Trout but, <laughs> let alone. But yeah, I would guess that um, I would guess that if he were re- sub replacement level every year without 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 getting a positive uh, number, uh, I would bet that in the sixth year he would still get 300 plate appearances. Hmm. I mean, I, I, look how many look how many chances. Felix PA got. I mean, like, what? How can you not gamble right. on Trout when people are willing? I mean, you know, every year I do the the worst age twenty seven seasons, mm-hmm. and like former former elite prospects who are basically getting their last chance at age twenty seven, and you know, there are there a couple of those guys are always in the majors despite having never done anything, just mm-hmm. because they were a top prospect six years earlier. Yeah, I mean, right, I think he gets a chance, he gets an invite to spring training every year, maybe someone sticks him on a bench, but Felix PA, at least according to BP's warp, never had a negative one replacement season. Um, Well, yeah, never had negative, well, reference has him, wow, reference has him at negative 1.9 in 85 (laughs) games. Uh, Well, that's part of it, too, I mean, if it's all, if it's all defense, um, then teams would maybe be more inclined to give him a, a shot if it's just, you know, UZR or something saying that his defense was bad in a single season. Then, if he's still sort of hitting, he could keep getting a shot. But um, I don't know. I think it's hard to play enough to get well, anybody, to yeah. negative one. Uh, somebody's right now is yelling at at their whatever people listen to this on. Uh, 
because they have like the perfect name in mind as a as a comparison. And so if you if somebody is is in your head right now, I I would be interested in hearing it. So tell me. But it can't be a shortstop. And it can't be a catcher because uh, those guys have different rules. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, this one comes from Greg in Lon- London, Ontario. Um, I've always been interested in the day-to-day work of a beat reporter, but I haven't read much on what happens when they start on a beat. When Sam was with the Orange County Register and he first started on the Angels beat, did he introduce himself to players, coaches, management on his first few days like you would any other job? Or did he just try to blend in and have people slowly recognize who he was? With baseball players, coaches, and managers being so busy, is it actually possible to get a few minutes alone to introduce yourself? Also, in Ben's case and now Sam's, when you talk to players for Baseball Prospectus, how do you introduce yourself now? Since you're not in a clubhouse every day like a beat reporter and they're not used to seeing you, is there a certain way you introduce yourself or do they even care since it's just another writer asking them questions? Uh, well, I, I was never a beat writer, and so I never had to do it. I, I was um, a non-beat writer who covered the team in a non-beat writing fashion, who every once in a while had to cover a game and, and interview players like maybe 10 or 15 times a year. So I was never going to build like any solid relationship with them. Uh, plus, I'm terribly shy, so I was never going to build any <laughs> solid relationship with them. Um, so I never did that. Um, I just acted awkwardly uh, until I started acting less awkwardly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not that hard to get. It's not. It's very easy to introduce yourself around uh, a clubhouse. I mean, they're not that busy. There's so much downtime, uh, and you just go stand in the locker room or the clubhouse. Uh, for the hour you're allowed and everybody walks past you and you could um, you know if a hitting coach walks past you he'll happily uh, you know shake your hand and uh, the manager's offices open uh, during uh, before the game and you could poke your head in and talk to him or so you know when you have your managers sit down uh, with every, you know all the reporters have their 15 or 20 minutes before the game in the dugout after his last question you can just sort of hang out and introduce yourself with the players you can go up to them and introduce yourself or you can wait until after you know they have some good game and the scrum is all around them asking them the post-game questions and then you can just hang on like two seconds later and tell them who you are so it's pretty easy um to do all that if you're if you're interested uh, in not being um uh, awkward and shy uh-huh. um front office is a little harder um like I would imagine that the GM would be happy to to introduce himself to you or to mm-hmm. be introduced to you, but uh, there's like there's like you know scores of people in the front office and they're busy and they're not there and right they're not you in don't, the clubhouse usually so. yeah exactly yeah so uh, that's harder I don't I don't know how I mean I would not you know I I, I never had any sort of uh, like relationship with the Angels like that where I you know, knew lots of them and could just like, you know, like where they would recognize me and all that. Um, I was much more like the ad hoc interview where like when I needed to talk to someone, I would sort of go through the channels and try to get to them. But um, I didn't do a lot of relationship building there when I was there. So for the second question, I remember when we had Zachary Levine on once we were actually discussing this before we started recording. Um, oh yeah, Zachary. Yeah, Zachary uh, saved me. He taught me how to do it. <laughs> right, because because it's tempting, you know, especially if you are someone who just goes to games periodically to, you know, talks to players periodically, and maybe you're talking to the visiting team, and so these are guys that you might see, you know, once or twice a year to talk to, and so 
you think, well, do I even bother wasting time introducing myself, you know, while I'm reciting my name and affiliation, this guy's eyes are glazing over. So maybe I should just kind of stride up and start getting my question out. He's probably not going to remember who I am anyway. He doesn't see me mm-hmm. enough for it to, to be internalized. So why waste the time? But Zachary uh, had, a, had a better idea. Yeah, yeah, no, that was my strategy initially for the first couple of years was definitely that I thought they don't want to spend they don't want to spend one second more with me than than they have to. And so I'm trying to race through it. And so, you know, I'd rush up and I wouldn't even introduce myself. I'd just be like, you have a minute and start throwing questions at them until they got bored, which gets you about two minutes and then you leave. Mm -hmm. Um, So Zachary, um, Zachary's uh, method is very simple it, it, and like not impressive. It's just like how grownups behave among other grownups. Um, but you just, you go over to them, you, uh, you tell them who you are. You say, I'm Sam Miller with Baseball Prospectus. And then you put your hand out there to shake their hand. You do not wait for them to, to you know, like give you affirmation. You just assume they're going to shake your hand. And by telling them right up front your name and who you work for, you're showing them that you're not, uh, you know, some low-level guy who's, uh, you know, uh, afraid of who he works for or, like, for, you know, uh, unemployed or anything like that. You're just saying, like, you know, I'm a proud of my affiliation. Here I am. So then you shake their hand. And the key thing in dealing with, um, with baseball folks, there's two things, basically. One is handshakes are everywhere. Everybody shakes hands with everybody. And so if you interviewed Mike Trout one time four years ago – and he walks past you, you're shaking his hand. He's going to shake your hand. They just shake hands like crazy. Like the two most plentiful things in baseball are gum and handshakes. And so just don't even feel bad. Don't don't conserve your handshakes. Just shake everybody's hand all the time. It's like so much more awkward to not shake somebody's hand than to shake their hand in baseball. The other thing is it's with players, it's all first names. Nobody goes, Nobody calls anybody by their last name. So you just call them by their first name when you're talking to them. You refer to them by first name when you're asking another player or the manager about them. Uh, if you are talking to, you know, Sosha and you say, uh, "Is Hunter playing today?" Uh, well, he'd be very confused. But if this were three years ago, you asked, "Is Hunter playing today?" He will actually like, like there will be a moment where he's like, "Who?" Uh, you know, and, and and then he'll he'll sort of steer you back to calling him Tori. Uh, so they will call each other by their uh, uncreative nicknames, you know, their their uh, Smoltzies and their <laughs> right. their their Jeffies and 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 their whatever their name is with a Y on the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> they'll call each other that somewhat, but they will uh, they'll 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 never call each other by last name. That's what I've found. So mm-hmm. that's that's everything I know. Yeah, that's enough, I think. Um, and just just. Uh, Asking a specific question I find is helpful. Just kind of, you know, coming in with with some plan, making it clear right away that you, you have a plan. You're not just sort of fishing for a, a quote or aimlessly walking up to a guy and hoping he'll say something interesting. But you've actually prepared and you've looked up something and you're clearly working on a specific story involving this player. That sort of thing um, oh, leads to better I have, answers, I think. I have not necessarily found that. Hmm. Because if you if you go in there with something in mind, they know that you have something in mind, and they're suspicious. They're wondering, uh, <laughs> like like how how does this frame me? Why is he asking me this? What's his what's his angle? 
And I always found in any beat that you, that everybody's thinking, what's this guy's angle? And you want them not thinking, what's your angle? Like, And so the more casual it is, I, I sometimes find that that's, that's better. I mean, a lot of times, I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of times players are like, they're, they want to peg you in on your story. And so they're anticipating your question. They're answering it when you're a third of the way through because mm. they're just, they're so zeroed in on trying to figure out your motives. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't found them to be that suspicious. Maybe mm. I'm just very disarming. Mm. I have a, I have a, I have a sort of a sinister brow. <laughs> um, okay, Matt Trueblood asks: Simple question. Put the six worst teams in baseball in order according to when they'll field a true talent ninety-win team from earliest to latest. And he names those six uh, worst teams in baseball. He says they are. The Cubs, the White Sox, the Rockies, the Astros, the Marlins, and the Twins. Hmm. So uh, the order that they'll produce a true talent 90-win team. Yes. Um, uh, and one of them might do it this year, just baseball being what it is. Eh, I don't know if one of them will do a true talent 90-win year. They might do a fluke 90-win year. Fair enough. Um. All right. Well, I, hmm, I think I think I'll go with the Cubs first. I will too. Um, I also will go with the Cubs first because they're not in the the depths of futility right now. They are, you know, a rung above that, and they also have an excellent farm system with a lot of guys who are pretty close to the majors. Um, mm. So Cubs. Um, the thing is, it helps to know what kind of timeline we're, we're thinking of. If we're thinking about, like, if you told me that the first one was going to be, well, say the Cubs was the first one, and then you told me the second one was going to be seven or nine years from now, mm. that changes things a lot. Well, it could be 20 years from now. With it a, could be. A 90-win true talent team is not something that comes along but, for every franchise often. Yeah, so thinking in the short term of like, oh, well, you know, their number four starter is not very good. It's probably the wrong way to think about this because they're all presumably many years off. And yeah, you're right. It could be 20 years for some team. So uh, is there one that stands? Is there? Well, let's put it this way. I guess if the Twins have the best farm system in baseball, according to Jason Parks' ratings this year, um, the, the Astros are very close to the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Would you put... Do you see an argument for White Sox, Rockies, Marlins over those two based on the strength of their farm systems? Uh, not the White Sox. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if it were 85 wins, the Rockies might be my next choice. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I mean, it's not. There's. I don't think there's any evidence existent that suggests 90 imminently. Mm-hmm. Um not to say that it won't happen, but like you just have to start making things up to get to ninety. Yeah. Um, so probably not. And then the Marlins, I just refuse. I mean, I just refuse. <laughs> a lot of people pick the Marlins as a wild card team this year somehow. Um, hmm. hmm. They do have some intriguing young talent, I suppose. They um, have a lot of intriguing young talent. They, yeah. They're yeah. They're, I mean, we've. Like like we've talked about, if they had anything else on their hat, people would be praising them right now. Yeah. So is that enough? Could be. I'm not doing it. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Uh, so let's go, I guess. I, I go Astros, too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> I go, uh, I mean, the Twins are, God, the Twins are more likely to do it in the next five years than the Rockies, probably. But it to me, it just feels like the Twins are like just so overwhelmingly likely if they don't do it in the next five years to never do it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. They just feel like like they have they get one one swing at it and they might get there. They at least they have a shot. But mm-hmm. if they you know if they top out at eighty eight in this current push or eighty six or seventy eight, just never. So I don't know. I kind of I kind of want to say. Uh, jeez. Do I have to say the Marlins? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of like this the... It's not easy. No. Sing, the White Sox. I'm going to say the White Sox last. Yeah. Uh, last, huh? I, I could see an argument for putting them earlier. Just because I, they... Uh, the market and... I don't know. I like the moves that they've made and the way that they've been run lately. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. I'll go Cubs, Astros, Twins, White Sox, Marlins, Rockies. I'm going. Um, I'm going Cubs, Astros, Marlins, Rockies, White Sox, Twins. Last place Twins. Okay. Yeah, I I'm gonna play the. I mean, I don't think that they're better than fifty percent to get to true talent ninety with uh you know the core they have in the next six years so i'm gonna mm. bet that they don't do it then and that and then after they fail as they're falling down uh the long slope um they'll uh they'll uh they'll, they'll never do it mm-hmm. so. all right let's do the baseball reference play index segment all right so this came up um yesterday when i was watching the marlins game and the person i was watching with read something on TV that said that uh, at the end of the game that said, I think that that said Jose Fernandez had thrown the highest percentage of strikes in a team's opening game uh, than anybody since 1988. And uh, he, he saw it very briefly. So I'm not sure if that's correct, but um, I immediately wondered, well, Oh, so who was it in 1988? And so I started thinking of the pitchers who might've started an opening day in 1988 I'm going through them in my head. Oh, well, I'll just go on play index. And so I went on play index, and I uh, I went to the uh, game finder for pitching, mm-hmm. and uh, and I looked. There's a place where you can put, uh, you know, you can limit it to uh, games that players had meeting specific specifications in the team's first X games. And so I just changed that to, to one, and so I could see all the opening day starters in, in 1988. And there was nobody who was uh, ahead of Fernandez, or even close. And so I was very confused. And I think that this is, uh, I think that the the uh, the stat that they had probably was uh, limited by the fact that pitch counts weren't real serious before 1988. I don't even know if they were really recorded before 1988. Mm-hmm. So I think 1988 was how far back their database went. Yes. Right. And so so he, he has the most in the recorded era, which is much more impressive and which is what they should have said. And maybe they did say it. But anyway, that's not the point. So then I started thinking, oh, um, so Jose Fernandez threw 77% strikes yesterday. Um, and I wondered, uh, you know, partially what the most strikes 
uh, with a high percentage of strikes that any pitcher has thrown in a start is. But also, more to the point, I wondered whether there's kind of a um, there's a uh, there's like sort of a cliff where you um, you get to throw too many strikes, where mm-hmm. like it just becomes problematic to throw so many strikes. And so right. I I started at seventy percent strikes and started counting how many games. Uh, starters had had made where they threw at least 70% strikes uh, and then just started adding one percentage point uh, at a time to see if there was a cliff uh, effect. Because Fernandez had like nine strikeouts, right? He was, I mean, he was not only throwing strikes, but I mean, they were, they were all sorts of strikes. He was getting chases and he was throwing in the zone, but getting swings and misses also. And um, yeah, and you you have to do that. You have to have good stuff to have to be on this list and mm-hmm. to also have a good start. Yeah. Um, so play one of the things that Play Index has, and this is uh, one of my favorite things. And it took me a while before I start. I I sort of got the hang of it. But you can choose one. You can filter by uh, players who have one stat in a in a particular ratio of another stat. So for instance, you could sort by games where the strikeouts are five times the walks right that's mm-hmm. that's a stat you could do uh or you know home runs are three times the uh, you know one third of the runs if you want to do that and so uh so i searched where pitches equals uh or is greater than 0.7 sorry i'm gonna say that again where strikes is greater than 70 percent of pitches mm-hmm. uh and just started searching one uh, one year at a time, uh, going back to 1988 and limiting it to only starters, um, and seeing what we got. And so the answer to my question is that there is no such cliff. The uh, decline by uh, by percentage is very very smooth. You essentially lose one third of your pool every time, and it's consistent all the way from 70 up to about 84 percent. There's 8,400 games uh, where a pitcher has thrown 70% strikes. There are, uh, and it just you know goes down. So Fernandez is one of 358 pitchers to throw 77% strikes, uh, and uh, 88 have thrown 80% strikes. 80, uh, 41 have thrown 82% strikes, and then 82 seems to be kind of where it maybe accelerates a little bit. Um, nobody has ever thrown. 83% strikes and thrown more than 100 pitches in uh-huh. a game. Now, partly that's because there are very few games where anybody has thrown 82% strikes, and so that's that's an accurate um, way of looking at it, but it's also partly because if you throw a ton of strikes, you might complete your game in 90 pitches, and so the, a few of those have happened. Um, so there are 28 at 83%, 23 at 84%, and then 85 is really where it ends, there, um, there are. Once you get to eighty-five percent, there are seventeen starts, but they are uh, they are all short starts. The longest one was a five-inning Tom Browning start, uh, where he was at eighty-five percent. So, uh, so, so on the one hand, nobody's topped eighty-five in a in a realistic situation. Mm-hmm. On the other, there's no there, there doesn't seem to be any point where you uh, where the league. Uh, where the league's pitchers say, well, enough is enough, we can't do any more, or we're going to have diminishing returns. It's a very smooth slope. Um, but, of course, this leads to the inevitable um, final question, which is who has the most pitches in a start without throwing a ball? Hmm. Uh, and it is John Tudor 
1989 had a game where he threw 10 pitches, all of them strikes. And what's interesting about that is not anything I've told you yet, because you can imagine, <laughs> you know, 10 pitches is nothing. He probably just got, you know, he got hurt on the second batter or something like that. It's it's sort of interesting, but it's really not interesting. What's interesting about Tudor is that he threw 10 pitches, all strikes, and faced seven batters, and hmm. they crushed him. He got he got he got yanked after giving up uh, three runs, um, a home run, a couple of doubles, four hits, and they pulled him with nobody out in the second inning. Uh, so he actually got um, he was throwing strikes, and they were hitting them all, every single one of them, almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Tudor uh, was pulled not just because he was bad in that game. He uh, hurt his elbow. Uh, he missed two months. And uh, and in Saber's uh, bio of John Tudor on their um, you know on their site and their bio project, there's a uh, there's a great paragraph of John Tudor describing himself at the time. And it really is amazing that this pitcher could exist um, because because he just sounds so horrible. And he wasn't that horrible. He actually was still a decent pitcher. And this is him describing himself. Uh, at the time, this is him actually describing himself at the time, not 10 years after the fact. My changeup is getting faster, which is a bad sign because it means my shoulder isn't allowing the proper deceleration. It was as if I was getting by on reputation. I haven't been able to get the ball inside, so I don't have anything to keep hitters from diving on me. I haven't thrown a slider all season. I'm not getting the proper extension at the end of my delivery. So not only am I not getting on the pop on my fastball, but I don't have my control. I have all these doubts storming inside me, and they all revolve around my 78-mile-an-hour fastball. <laughs> Man, I thought CC Sabathia last season was sort of depressing when he, that he was nowhere close to that. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. <laughs> Okay, good. Um, so people can, can go to baseballreference.com, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted one-year subscription price of $30. Uh, you could try it and see if you like it, and there's a, a money-back guarantee, but we don't think that you'll need it. Um, if there were a way to, uh, if we had pitch FX data going back further enough and you could you could look at percentage of pitches in the strike zone instead of strikes, then presumably you would, at a certain point, uh, it would be a bad thing, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. Because when we're just looking at strikes, then you've got guys who are getting chases, and chases are good. But um, pitches, True. too many pitches in the strike zone, not so great. Okay. Um, Coleman from Southampton says, Catcher framing is now mainstream enough that even old-school broadcasters refer to it during games at times. I'm surprised it isn't seen in a more negative light. Essentially, a catcher who excels at framing, let's say Jose Molina, tries to deceive the umpire in order to disadvantage opposing hitters slash gain an advantage for his team. This is no different from, for example, diving in soccer. Divers are referred to as cheaters by old school media types, yet framers are exempt from similar disdain. Why doesn't Molina lead the league and hit by pitches? Players who are caught stealing signs or peeking to see where the catcher is setting up are punished in this way. Why do you think framing doesn't violate the unwritten rules? And do you think this might change as players become even more aware of it? Are you, do you have an answer in mind? I, mm. I, Mike Fast has addressed this before. Did he? I don't remember. What did he say? Uh, well, he, he thinks that framing and um, that the effect that a catcher has 
is really much less about stealing strikes and really much more about not losing strikes. And yeah, mm-hmm. is more often uh, less the Molina uh, steal and more just the Molina, you know, the pretty Molina catch. I mean, it's basically um, uh, that what they're doing is you know no different than you know hitting a ball that's pitched to them really hard. It's you're you're doing what you can do to do it as well as you can. Um, so that it's not really about deceiving the umpire, that it's really about making sure that you uh, do the best job to give the umpire the right look so that he can see that your pitcher threw a strike. Mm-hmm. And Molina's, Molina, I don't know if you've pointed this out or if Jeff Sullivan has pointed it out or if you both have pointed it out, but Molina does seem to have some enemies. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if they blame him necessarily, but like one of you has done something on like the frustrating, this frustrated <laughs> faces that batters make yes. after, after <laughs> yeah. Molina. Yeah, I did that. That was fun. Uh, and Molina, yeah, yeah, and Molina's kind of extreme. So it does seem to me that most unwritten, one of the, one of the unwritten rules of unwritten rules is that um, it only becomes an unwritten rule when it starts to get too effective or if it is too effective. Uh-huh. And so if there is a kind of awareness of how effective this is, and and furthermore, if this awareness of how effective it is inspires catchers to go further and further to be more effective, then you could imagine a backlash for sure. Yeah, it's hard to figure out unwritten rules, but you're right. I don't know, maybe maybe with more attention, but I, I don't know if you're even the best guys are good enough at it for it to be such a, a constant thing that players are getting frustrated about that they would seek retribution. Um, the other thing is that the other thing is that the umpire is the common enemy, and there's nothing in baseball. I can't think of an instance where it's ever considered uh, bad form to mislead the umpire, uh, right? I mean, pitchers are constantly balking uh, as long as they can just barely get away with it in ways that it's very deliberate and and kind of insidious. Um, and the idea of diving and holding up a trapped ball as though you caught it is, you know, 100% accepted. We talked one time about uh, whether whether, uh, whether a, a fielder could pull off a move where he, he leaps, you know, for a ball over the wall and then just pretends he caught it and runs all the way into the dugout with the third out. Mm-hmm. And whether that would be so egregious as to, um, to merit... Uh, yeah, you know, retribution. And somebody pointed out that an outfielder actually had done this, had gone into the stands uh, for a foul ball, and the ball had landed like like 15 feet away from him or something. But the umpire, or maybe it bounced 15 feet away from him. But anyway, he uh, the umpire called him out and the, and uh, called the, the batter out, and the guy just ran into the dugout with no ball in his glove, uh, and like looked pretty proud of his catch. So. Uh, I mean, the, you, I think you have to just uh, appreciate that the umpire is not a peer of these baseball players. They do not care if you lie to the umpire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, they don't like the umpire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, this one comes from Darius in Norwich, uh, UK. During the conversation last week, or this is from a couple weeks ago, about how you would react if the new Major League Baseball Advanced Media player tracking technology produced results that suggested Andrelton Simmons was a bad defender, and while I also found it hard to imagine how Simmons could be rated badly by any system, got me thinking about which players might and what the technology might like and not like. 
The specific example that came to mind was Dustin Pedroia and the little hop he often does before diving for a ground ball. Pedroia has consistently graded out as an above-average defender by most metrics. Do you think the new technology would conclude that Pedroia was in fact wasting time that he could be spending getting to the ball when he did that hop and give him a lower efficiency rating because of that? Are there any other player defensive idiosyncrasies that you think will actually start to draw criticism because video tracking suggests that they are doing things poorly? In a more general sense, will the technology actually start identifying fundamental problems with a player's style, like a first step or the way that they catch? If so, do you think teams will start trying to iron out such movements or concentrate on certain ways of doing things at a much earlier stage? Or do teams already do this to such an extent that it won't change anything? So I don't know how many players have very obvious defensive idiosyncrasies. It's not like when you think of how a player hits and he's got his own stance and and everything. Um, how many how many defenders do you really think of doing something differently? I mean, you might have guys who do a, a jump throw or guys who do, you know, they get down on their knees to field something, but there's not that much variety. Um, for something like the, the hop, I don't know. I would assume that, that it would be basically like it is with hitting mechanics or pitching mechanics. If it works, uh, teams would be hesitant to tinker with it because you don't want to take away some some habit that a guy has that he's been using forever and potentially screw him up in, in some other way. So if, if they were to determine that a guy was actually taking a, a bad first step or going in the wrong direction or something, then I assume that they would target that that they would do some drills, just having him take first steps over and over. Um, or, you know, if if a guy were always getting to balls but dropping them when he got to them or something, that would, that would probably be pretty obvious. Like if a guy had great range and great root efficiency but made a lot of errors anyway, then that would suggest that, you know, I don't know, maybe his glove is in the wrong fielding position or something and you would, you would do something about that. Um, but I don't, I don't know how many instances like this there are. Yeah, you could see that there might be some um, balance between how quick your first step is and how quickly you accelerate. So maybe you can take, you know, maybe your jump as a second baseman, like maybe Pedroia's little hop uh, allows him to uh, accelerate faster toward the ball, but at you know a, a small expense of how quick his his jump is and so if the system is focused primarily i mean if if we're looking more at the reaction time which i imagine is one thing that if we have this we will be obsessed with yes uh then we might overlook that um in giving up a little bit of his reaction time he might be gaining something in acceleration time conceivably mm-hmm. i don't really know but conceivable yeah maybe it's uh, like taking a little off the fastball or something to to get better control, better command. Yeah, but basically, I mean, it, it's hard to see how you could have it lie to you. I mean, it's just telling you how long it takes for them to get places, and it doesn't really matter what you're doing to get there. It's not going to judge you on style I, ex- exactly. If you're getting there faster, you're getting there faster, and that's what we're we're all going to be looking at is how quickly you do the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder about... Um, I wonder how it's going to handle like outfielders who 
um, you know, play a ball on the hop, you know, like if you're, the route is going to be different if the outfielder thinks that he's going to have to play it on the hop or if he's, you know, worried about having to play it on the hop. Mm. So if you take an, like if two outfielders might see the same ball and one goes straight at it and the other goes to cut it off. And I don't know how you compare those two decisions with this, with this metric. This might be one thing where there's still like a little confusion or mm-hmm. like, I don't even know if confusion is the right word, but um, inconclusiveness about the right way to play the ball. Yeah, I guess. That's a small thing. It's once you've built up a large enough sample, then you'll have so many identical plays or near identical plays that you can say that when a ball is hit in this position at this speed and a guy is this far away, um, X percentage of outfielders make the catch or attempt to make the catch or something. And then you could, you could tell if a certain outfielder is more tentative than, than the typical guy. Maybe you Mm -hmm. would tell him that, but that seems like something that you would need, need some time. Yeah. Uh, Hey, before we go, I have one thing to note. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tommy Rancel pointed out to me that Matt Albers uh, Mm -hmm. finished a game, but did not get the save. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, Okay. uh, Oh, wow. Boosting his lead, his record, <laughs> extending his record, and uh, and keeping it intact as well, which is the more significant thing. So who is the challenger? Someone on the Orioles? Uh, I think yeah, I think it was uh, Ryan Webb, right? Yes, it was Ryan Webb, right. Huh. Okay, interesting. We will, we will keep an eye on that. Um, <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> uh, we are keeping an eye on a lot of things. We, we got an email that I won't go through right now, but, uh, but a listener named John who has been diligently tracking all of our all of our drafts and and bets over the couple of years that we've been doing this almost uh, and has been updating us and in the Facebook group you can find files that people have have entered with the drafts that we've done 25 and under players and soft tossing pitchers and rule five guys and or minor league free agents and all of these things that we've done over the years so we are we are being held accountable for the things that we say which is nice and scary. Um, So that's it for today. Uh, Please send us emails for next Wednesday's email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show on iTunes. It helps us get the podcast in front of more people. And please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild, which is now well over 1,000 listeners strong. We will be back with a new show and a new topic tomorrow.